I want to remind you that this evening we have a special service planned. Uh, it's an ordination service for Tyler Walsh. You'll want to come to that because the, the hazing ritual and the initiation is, is really moving. No, I'm kidding. That'll be at uh, 6 p.m. right here. It will also be online, so if, if you aren't able to be here and want to tune in uh, our YouTube channel, should have a link for that. Let's pray as we get ready to hear the Lord's word. Father, even as, as I say that, I'm just um, struck again by how amazing it is that you have spoken. Um, you have spoken in times past through the prophets in many ways and many times and in these last days you have spoken through your son and so we want you to please uh, open our ears give us ears to hear give us hearts that receive your truth uh, because you you intend good for us we need to listen to you and we pray that you would just bring about whatever changes need to happen in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible and want to open it, uh, or a Bible app, to the last chapter in the whole book, Revelation chapter 22, is where we'll be here in a minute. Our series is entitled, Heavenly Minded. And that is meant to communicate the kind of goal for the service, which is that we would be that. We would be heavenly minded. We would think we, about, we would anticipate, we would look forward to being in that ultimate destination that God has promised to those who belong to him by faith through the Lord Jesus and so if you have a faith relationship with Jesus, uh, basically we're talking about your future. We have a statement, a summary statement of what the Bible teaches about this ultimate destination, our ultimate future, and that statement is this. Our eternal destination is a resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. That comes from Randy Alcorn's big book called Heaven, which I recommend. And this future, this future that I just summarized in that statement, this future is so good and so exciting and so satisfying that it's going to make the best experiences we've had in this life seem utterly mediocre at best. And it's kind of ironic because it's not unusual for those who profess to believe in Jesus and, and love his word to really not spend much time thinking about this ultimate future. We just kind of are busy with our life. We don't think about it. And then some who do worry about it because they're afraid it's going to be boring. They think that, you know, they're just going to be sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, and singing forever. And that idea 
Well, it's not only unbiblical, it's not what the Bible teaches. It makes no sense if you think about it. I mean, just think about it for a second. Why would the God who created all of the wonderful things that we enjoy in this life, okay, even though this world is, is broken, it is blighted by our sin and by the curse, why would God make our eternal destination where sin and the curse are taken away forever? Why would that be less interesting, less enjoyable, less exciting? Why, why would God do that? Well, he wouldn't, and he won't. So we just need to get rid of that nonsense. And we need to fill our minds with what God has promised. And today, we're going to turn our attention to what is really the most amazing thing of all about our ultimate destination. In fact, it's so amazing, words feel inadequate to really describe it. Um, imagine seeing something just completely spectacular. You know, maybe like going to the Grand Canyon and just and seeing it, you know, and looking at that. And then imagine trying to explain it to someone who's never seen it, has no idea what the Grand Canyon is. That'd be tough, wouldn't it? Well, what would you say? Uh, it's a big hole in the ground. <laughs> it's not going to cut it, right? Well, what we're going to be looking at today is far more amazing than anything you and I have ever encountered uh, and, 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 and talking about this is even trickier because not only have you not seen it, I haven't seen it either. So we're going to really need to focus and listen very carefully to what the Lord has told us in his word because he's the one, he's the only one who really knows what this is going to be like. So what, it, what is this most amazing thing about our future? Okay, so Revelation Chapter 22, last, very last chapter in the whole book. The book of Revelation is a vision that was given to the Apostle John. And in Revelation 22, he's giving us a vision. He's communicating this vision of our ultimate future. So listen to what he says. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. By the way, just notice, one throne, God and the Lamb, that's Jesus sharing the throne. That's a clear statement of his deity. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Well, did you see it? <laughs> I slowed down at that point because it is astonishing. It's astonishing. 
when, when we reach our final destination, when Jesus finally transforms our bodies and transforms our world, makes all things new, for the first time since sin entered this world, we are going to experience God's presence with absolutely nothing getting in the way. As John says it, we're going to see him. We're going to see his face. I just, just try to think about that for a minute. He says they will see his face. Now, if reading that, if hearing that, doesn't make you just go, whoa. Well, you're not thinking clearly. And I'm not thinking clearly. If we don't feel something, some astonishment, some just amazement, some wonder when we read that, uh, we, we, we've, we've, got to, we, we've got to think about what it really means. So I want to I look at a story from the life of Moses that will help us see, and, and more importantly, help us feel how over-the-top spectacular this promise is. Okay, so Moses, he, he had a special role in, in the outworking of God's plan. He was chosen by God to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into the land that God had promised to give them. And more importantly, Moses was chosen by God to reveal his word to the Israelites, his Torah, his instruction, so that they could know him and so they could live in relationship with him. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he is, uh, he is receiving God's Torah, his instruction. And, and as he's there... Moses gets so caught up in this experience that he asks God for something. And I want you to see what he asks for and how God responds. Exodus 33, beginning verse 18. Then Moses said, please, show me your glory. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So, here's Moses. He's having this amazing Experience. I mean, God is talking to him. And so he, he is experiencing something of God's presence, but he, he begins to realize there is so much more. There is so much more of God that he's not experiencing yet. And he, he, he's, he's just getting a taste, just a taste of how good God is. And that taste creates within him a longing for more. You know, kind of like when you take one little bite of dessert and you go, that's not enough. That is not enough. I've got to have more. 
Okay, that times 10 million or something. I don't know. Moses cried. So Moses says, Lord, please show me your glory. I want more. I want more. I want to know you more. And God says he will show his glory to him. He says he's going to cause all of his goodness to pass in front of him. But there's still a limit. There's a limit to what Moses can experience. He cannot see his face because no one can see his face and live. Now we'll consider what that means in just a minute or two. But but do you begin to see why this promise in Revelation 22 is so amazing? So incredible? So breathtaking? God says here, no one can see his face and live. And yet God wants his people to know him. He wants them to experience something of his presence. That's why this whole interaction between God and Moses is happening in the first place. And it's why he's giving Moses his word, his truth. Because he wants his people to experience something of his goodness and then tell the world about him. And it's why he has the Israelites build what's called the tabernacle. So if you've ever read through the book of Exodus, you get to the last several chapters, and it's all about these detailed instructions for building this portable temple. And the whole point of that portable temple was so that God's presence could be manifested right in the midst of his people. So they're all camped around, and right in the middle is this tabernacle, and that's where God's presence would dwell in the midst of his people. But with limits, only a very special class of people could actually go into the tabernacle. You know, as you as Joe Israelite, you would bring your sacrifice there to the courtyard, but only the priests could go in the tabernacle into the holy place, and only one of them, the high priest, could go into what's called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was manifested most thoroughly. And he could only do that once a year, on the Day of Atonement. And it was a constant reminder to the people, you cannot see God's face. You cannot see God's face and live. You can experience something of his presence, but you can't, you can't get that close. And that's a big problem. Because that's what we long for. Whether we realize it or not. A lot of people don't realize it. And even we who have come into a faith relationship with Jesus, we, we forget. We're made to know God. We're made to enjoy his presence. That's what he created us for whether we realize it or not, we often don't realize it. Uh, every good thing, okay, every single good thing we enjoy is, is a taste, just a taste of God's goodness. But we want to rule our own lives. That's the basic problem of humanity. We, we want to be in charge. We want to be God of our own lives. We, we, think, you know, we think we know better. That's so stupid. But So what we try to do is we try to separate the good things of creation from the Creator. It's like, well, I'll just, I'll just be satisfied with this. Yeah, I'll just... And it's so dumb. It's just so dumb. Because the only reason it's any good at all is because it's reflecting the goodness of God. 
Okay, so if, if you see somebody's garden and it's a beautiful garden, it's reflecting the skill of the gardener. If you look at an impressive building, it's reflecting the, the uh, wisdom, the skill of the architect. If you see a delightful painting, it's demonstrating the talent of the artist. Any good thing we enjoy is only good because of God. It's God's glory that we're longing for. It's an ache. It's a hunger deep in every soul. And it's what God's people have always longed for. It's why Moses said, show me your glory. It's why David in the Psalms says, your face, Yahweh, I will seek. Why did he say that? He couldn't do it. But he wanted it. And, Isaiah, and God promises in Isaiah that a day is going to come when his glory will be seen in a new way. Isaiah 40, verse 5, the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. When, Lord, when? When will your glory be revealed so that everyone can see it? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally set up his tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, when Jesus came, when the Word who was always eternally with God and Himself is God, when He took on flesh, when He took on humanity, He displayed the glory of God as never before. And this is how the shocking, astonishing promise of Revelation 22 can be true. Jesus made it possible for us to see God's face. He made it possible for us to see God's face. And he did two, two things, two ways he did this. First, in Jesus, God took on a human face. That's what he was just saying. You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. For all eternity. And then at a moment in time, the word became flesh. Deity took on humanity. God took on a human face. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God. He's the invisible God made visible. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. In 2 Corinthians 4, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us, notice, the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
Now, when, when God told Moses, okay, you can't see my face, what, what did he mean by that? Because we know, looking at Scripture as a whole, we know God is eternal spirit. Right? God doesn't have a body. The Son of God does now because he took on a body. But what did, what did God mean when he said to Moses, you can't see my face? Well, he's talking about something very profound. He's talking about seeing the essence of his person, the essence of who he really is. So think about it for a minute. When you look at someone and you want to talk to them, you want to interact with them, what do you look at? If you're a parent, you say to your child, because they're in trouble, come here, look at me. No, no, look at me. Well, what's me? What do you want them to look at? Your hands, your feet, your elbows, your face, your face. To connect with someone relationally, you look at their face. We communicate through our faces. The eyes, the smile, or the frown. You know, it's the expression on the face, by and large. You know, some people are good at masking how they're really doing. But it, the face, the face is what shows what's going on inside of a person. You get to know people through their faces. So when God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, he meant something like, you cannot see me fully as I really am. But now in Jesus, God has a face we can see. It's, it's just amazing. One, one of Jesus' disciples, one day, uh, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. <laughs> and Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. So, in Jesus, God took on a human face. The other thing he did, this is staggering, in Jesus, God took away the barrier of our sin. That's the other thing he did to make it possible for us to see God's face. He took away the barrier of our sin. See, the biggest obstacle to us seeing God is not simply that he's infinite and we're finite. It's because The biggest obstacle is that he is utterly, to- totally, completely, always 100% righteous. And we, well, let's just say we're not. We're really, really not. We're sinful. And I think this is the main thing God was referring to when he said, you cannot see my face because no one can see me and live. Why is that? Well, Romans 3.23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so think about it. The thing you need most, the thing you long for most in the depths of your soul, whether you realize it or not, is the one thing you cannot have in and of yourself. Because you fall short. So do I. 
what you need, what you crave in the depths of your soul so that your soul will actually be satisfied is to see God. But on your own merits, you cannot. You cannot see Him. Okay, but here, listen to the good news. The good news. Listen to it. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. Our sins, not His. The righteous, He for the unrighteous, us, why? You, do you see it? Everybody say it with me. To bring you to God. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So by dying in our place, taking on Himself our sins, satisfying God's eternal justice, Jesus made it possible for the barrier, the insurmountable barrier between us and God to be surmounted, to be taken away once and for all. Jesus brings us to God. Notice that carefully. Notice it doesn't say Jesus died to bring us to heaven. Jesus died to bring us to God, the person It's God's presence, it's seeing God's face that makes heaven heaven. That's what's going to make our ultimate future so amazing, so satisfying, so glorious. Jesus is God's way of overcoming every single obstacle that keeps us from experiencing God and His glory. God is our eternal joy. Jesus died to bring us to Him. So if we, 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 we really need to be careful. If we're talking to people and we're giving them the idea or if we ourselves have the idea that the, the, the main point, the big deal about receiving Jesus into your life, becoming a Christian, if we think the main thing is being forgiven of our sin so we don't go to hell, we're missing it. That's not it. Forgiveness isn't the goal. God is the goal. God is the goal. Forgiveness is how Jesus gets us to the goal. Forgiveness is Jesus getting rid of the barrier between us and God. It is the unhindered enjoyment of God's presence that Jesus died to give us. I'll say that one more time. It is the unhindered enjoyment of God's presence that Jesus died to give us. And that's the ultimate reason why your ultimate future will be so glorious, because we're going to see God face to face. So I'm going to tell you a story that I think illustrates this pretty well. It's not my story. It could be my story, because I've done very similar things. This is from John Piper's book, so he gets the blame. God is the Gospel is the name of the book. Think about that title. God is the Gospel. God is the good news. Okay, this is what he says. Suppose I get up in the morning, and as I'm walking to the bathroom, I trip over some of my wife's laundry that she left lying on the hall floor. And instead of simply moving the laundry myself and assuming the best of her, I react in a way that is all out of proportion to the situation and say something very harsh to my wife as she's waking up. Well, she gets up, puts the laundry away, and walks downstairs ahead of me, and I can tell by the silence 
and from my own conscience that our relationship is in trouble. As I go downstairs, my conscience is condemning me. Yes, the laundry shouldn't have been there. Yes, I might have broken my neck. But those thoughts are mainly the self-defending flesh talking. The truth is my words were way out of line. Not only was the emotional harshness out of proportion to the seriousness of the fault, the Bible tells me to overlook the fault. So as I enter the kitchen, there is ice in the air. And her back is blatantly toward me as she works at the kitchen counter. Now, what needs to happen here? The answer is obvious. I need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. That would be the right thing to do. All right, but here's the point. Here's the point of this analogy. Why do I want her forgiveness? So that she'll make my breakfast? So that my guilt feelings will go away? I don't want to feel guilty anymore. So I'll be able to concentrate at work today so that there will be good sex tonight. So the kids, the kids won't see us at odds so that she will finally admit the laundry should not have been there. It may be, it may be that every single one of those desires would come true, but they are all defective motives for wanting her forgiveness. What's missing is this. I want to be forgiven so that I will have the sweet fellowship of my wife back. She is the reason I want to be forgiven. I want the relationship restored. Forgiveness is simply getting obstacles out of the way so that we can look at each other again with joy. Jesus died for our sins to bring us to God. So that one day, we can see him face to face. With absolutely nothing getting in the way. Yes, it's true. If if you're a believer in Jesus, God is with you now. If you've received Jesus into your life, his spirit dwells within you. But as, as awesome as that is, that's just a taste of what's to come. Just a taste. Because we're forgiven now, but we're not sinless yet. And as long as sin is present in us, our experience of God's glory is going to be limited. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Okay, I want to try to bring this home with a very serious question okay every one of us should consider this question very carefully if you could have a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth but without the resurrected christ could you be satisfied If you could have eternity with no suffering, all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, could you be satisfied if Christ were not there? Now, there's a sense in which it's an unreal question. 
because Jesus is reflected in all those other good things. If you take Jesus out of them, they don't really exist. But do you get the point? Could you be satisfied without seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus if, if something in you says, yeah, I, I'd be okay with that? You don't yet understand what the good news of Jesus is for. Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. If you don't want God, you don't want what Jesus died to accomplish. And if that describes you, I urge you to pray. I mean, I, I've had plenty of times in my life where I've thought, yeah, I really want Jesus to come, but I hope he waits until after this because I really want this. <laughs> I think it's a struggle everybody has because this is something I can see. This is something I can touch or taste or whatever. And the promises of God sometimes seem remote. But this, this is what we long for. This is what we need. This is what we should want more than anything. And if we don't, we just need to pray. Pray that God will break our hearts, help us see what's really at stake, because we're confused. You know, at that point, we don't see sin for what it really is. We don't see it as bad. You can always tell when, when we're not seeing sin for what it really is when we trivialize it. We go, yeah, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Nobody's perfect. Well, that's true. But sin isn't just about doing bad things. Sin isn't just about hurting other people. Sin isn't just about messing up the world. Sin is ultimately at its core rejecting God. And probably nobody in this room, including myself, really feels how awful that is. But Jesus came to fix that problem. To take away from us this horrible, horrible shame of rejecting the greatest person there is. And if you want God, then ask Jesus to bring you to him if you haven't yet. I, I um, had the privilege of leading a memorial service yesterday, and I told this story then, and I think I've told it probably more than once here. But I'm going to do it again because I think it, um, it illustrates the point really well. Uh, when our sons were little, I, I played a game with them because I wanted them to really latch on to this truth. So I, I put the three of them on our brick fireplace hearth. It's about 12 inches off the ground. Then I moved all the furniture out of the way so they couldn't jump on it. And I said, okay, here's the game. You got to get from the hearth to the entryway, that lovely vinyl over there, and you've got to do it without touching the carpet. Go. And so, you know, one of them tried to jump. It's 15 feet. Not a chance. Not even close, right? And then after that, then they all complained. They complained for a while. Dad, that's not fair. That's impossible. And one of them figured it out. He said, oh, Dad, would you carry me? Winner, winner. 
Friends, the gulf between us in our sin and God in His holiness, who we need more than anything, makes that 15-foot gap in my living room nothing by comparison. And if you feel the distance, then know God has bridged the gap. You can't jump it. You cannot by any of merit of your own, any good works of your own, I don't care how many times you come to church, how many times you pray, how many times you take communion, get baptized, none of those things will cross that gap. But if you, if God is giving you now the faith to say, hey, Jesus, would you carry me to God? He absolutely will. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he rose from the dead. Just ask. Confess your sins. Say, yep, I don't deserve to be there. But Lord, if you'll make me worthy, please do it. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, in your mercy, your Son became flesh and dwelt among us, and those who saw him face to face saw your glory, saw you in him, and you have extended that promise to every single one of us who will come to you through faith in Jesus, through saying, Jesus, please carry me. Carry me to God. I can't get there on my own. I, I, I'm not good enough. I can't, I can't forgive my own sin. But if you'll carry me, Lord, please do that. I pray that if there's anyone here who has yet to ask you, Lord, to bring, bring them to you, I pray that today might be the day of salvation for them or at least a day of thinking, asking good questions and resolving to get good answers. Thank you, Lord, for this promise of seeing you face to face. May that promise give us strength and hope and courage and the ability to love when it's hard so that we, uh, we have the hope that you want us to have. We pray in Jesus' name.